Um, so our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it law for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marvelling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honour at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Thank you very much. Well, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us clearly from what is a clear section of Scripture and help us to understand it, help us to listen and to heed it uh, for your glory and our good, for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Now, there comes a point for everyone when they have to make a decision about Jesus. Now, we're coming to the sharp end of Luke's Gospel. We'll soon be at his account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that he has come to seek and to save the lost. Who is lost? Who is lost? The answer is every single person who has not come to Jesus in humility, recognizing their need of forgiveness and trusting in Jesus for that forgiveness. That is what the Lord Jesus teaches. It is crystal clear. And the question is, will we submit to His authority to repent and believe His message of salvation? Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus described salvation like a door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. It is a narrow door, hard to get through. Why? Not because there are things we must do to enter through it. It is a narrow door for precisely the opposite reason, that there is nothing we can do except humble ourselves, submit to Jesus' authority, and accept His Word that we are lost sinners and thus enter in. It is hard for humanity to find humility to enter through that door. It would be easier were we to be able to enter by works. There comes a point when we have to make a decision about Jesus, perhaps today. There are many people around church at the moment, either here or listening online, who are close to that decision point. Let me explain where we're going. We've got three, three points to work through this passage. Let me give them to you, and then we'll take each in turn. Firstly, refusing to submit to Jesus' absolute authority. Secondly, Jesus claims absolute authority. And thirdly, Jesus demonstrates His absolute authority in judgment and salvation. And uh, when we study God's Word and when we teach God's Word, it is alive and active one and not the same time. So, what I expect to be happening is that there will be an engagement or not with His authority. Number one, refusing to submit to His authority. Now, Luke records two episodes where the Jewish religious leaders refuse to submit to Jesus' authority. Firstly, in chapter 20, verses 19 to 26, and secondly, in chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. The first episode is verses 19 to 26. And Luke's record is pretty shocking. The antagonism of these religious leaders toward Jesus. Luke records that the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. Their only caution that they feared the people. They were afraid of Jesus' popularity. 
Or verse 20, they watched him, they sent spies, they pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so they could deliver him up to the authority of the Romans. They try to catch him out with a question, preceded with a dose of flattery. So they, verse 21, the religious leaders asked him, teacher, here's the flattery, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the Word of God. That is chock full of irony because it is truth. The question, verse 22, Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? You want to imagine the scene, Jesus is teaching there in the temple, surrounded by people. Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay tribute, to give taxes, in other words, to Caesar or not? It's a smart question. If Jesus answers, Yes, that would discredit him in the eyes of the Jewish people as they are subjugated under the authority of Rome, part of which is exacting remuneration in taxes. The only reason, remember, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, had not arrested Jesus was his popularity among the Jewish people. If, though, he answered, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus may retain the popularity of the Jewish crowds, but would antagonize the Roman authorities. It is a wicked win-win. Now, when Jesus answers these questions, don't think of Jesus drawing on some sophisticated, smarter, sharper argument. His answers are full of conviction and truth. His answer, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, show me a coin, give me a coin. And so they gave him a a coin and he takes the coin and he says, whose head is on it or whose likeness or inscription does it have? And it's Caesar's head, obviously. We understand that because our monarch is on our coins. Now the word likeness, whose likeness image, that word likeness is better translated or more literally translated image. It's the same word as used in Genesis chapter uh, 1 about humanity created in the image of God. Whose image is on the coin? They said Caesar's. Well, give it to him then. Then render to Caesar, Jesus says, the things that are Caesar's. And here's the conviction and to God the things that are God's. The coin is Caesar's to give it to him. What do you give to God? Who or what bears Caesar's image? The coin shall give it to him. Who or what bears God's image? Humanity. So give yourself to God. It is a powerful answer. 
that not only conveys Jesus' authority, but what a true follower is, someone who gives their life to God. How did the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders respond? At verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. Now, I think that's true of God's Word. God's Word says what it says. And you can't say it doesn't say what it says. And it does, it does silence us. The question is, what do we do with it? They marveled at his answer, whatever that means. But I don't think for one moment it crossed their minds that Jesus was implying that they had not given their lives to God. Whose image is stamped on your life? You bear the image of the Creator God, tarnished, broken, like the teacup. You need a new heart. But Jesus is saying to you and to me, you bear my image, so give your life to me. Have you? The second episode is verses 27 to 40, and the next group of religious leaders who question Jesus are the Sadducees. They were a particular sect of uh, Judaism, and they were... Uh, uh, the thing that the feature of the Sadducees was that they did not believe in the resurrection and life after death. And that countered Jesus' repeated and consistent teaching that he would die and after three days rise again. And their question is in verse 28 Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And they are quite right. They are quoting from Genesis 38, Deuteronomy 25, for example, uh, about something called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was a practice uh, in the ancient world uh, whereby a man was obliged, if his brother died, to marry his brother's wife if they had no children. And the intention was to preserve the name and memory of the deceased brother and to ensure the establishment of the deceased brother's property inheritance. So they're quite right. But the question they pose is uh, a hypothetical scenario. And I think you've really got to be stretching your imagination to think they actually wanted to know the answer to this question. It's a kind of trick question to discredit here it is, verse 29, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now I find that quite frightening. I've preached on this a couple of times today, or I'm in the second time. I think it's just quite frightening, quite frightening that people have the bottle to say that to Jesus. What a smart question. 
Oh, how sophisticated they are. Now, Jesus' response to them is clear and strong and careful. First, he teaches that there will be no marriage in the resurrection, so their hypothetical scenario is irrelevant. Foolish. Look at what he says, verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In the age to come, there will be no marriage. Now, when I read that this week, Well, you can't just kind of bypass a comment like that, I don't think. Let's pause and just think about the pastoral implications of that comment, not in terms of Jesus' argument here, but just the pastoral implications of that comment. <laughs> I wonder if... if a phrase or a statement like that from Jesus causes us anxiety? Does it make us sad? As a married couple, you love one another very much. One day death will separate you. And for a number of people in the church family, that has happened. People speak about being reunited with their spouse in heaven and take great comfort from that. Or our experience of marriage on the earth could be so very different. Or we might long to be married and are not married. Now, believing in Jesus as our Savior means that when we die, our souls immediately go to be with Him, and one day our bodies will be raised incorruptible and we will live with the Lord in the new creation, but we will not be married to anyone. Why is that? Jesus said it is because we cannot die anymore. That's what he says here. I think he means that there will be no need to have children because we will live forever. Moreover, Jesus says, because we will be equal to angels and sons of God. Marriage will be no more. So there are the reasons. Now, when I was 25, before I was married, I might have given the reasons there and just moved on, but I don't find that adequate in my heart. Maybe that's bad. I think it's the kind of thing that we need to think through. When these statements are made, what do we make of that? Let me suggest that there are two fundamental principles that are helpful that underpin what Jesus and the apostles teach about eternity, the new creation. The first is this, that the new creation where as Christians we will live for eternity is vastly different from the realm of our experience in this world. All too easily, we can think of what is the very best in this life and think of the new creation as an extension of that. 
In other words, the analogy we draw on is from this world. The new creation will be radically, wonderfully, beautifully better than anything we can know or imagine. And therein lies the second principle. And let me express it in a real way as I think through what it means that I will not be married to Sally in the new creation. The Lord Jesus says to me, eternity is perfect and wonderful and beautiful and there is no good thing that is not there and I know you do not understand how that can be the case when it comes to stuff like this. But trust me. Trust me. Now, let me give a little pastoral footnote. When you're newly married, and if you are in a happy marriage, that seems impossible to believe. When you are halfway through life, it seems slightly more impossible to believe. But when you are close to the end of your life, or in old age as a married couple, or bereaved, My observation is that people believe it with all their heart. Now, how can that be if it were not true? How can it be that when heaven comes close, people are supernaturally conscious of how beautiful it is? Now, I hope that's helpful to get us thinking but not to distract us from the main line here in Luke. Back to our passage. The Sadducees' hypothetical scenario was designed to show how absurd, how naive believing in resurrection and life after death is. Jesus exposes the naivety. Their hypothetical scenario is foolish because there is no marriage in the new creation. But Jesus wants to address the fundamental issue, and that is that they do not believe in resurrection and life after death. And he does it by pointing them to the teaching of Moses. The Sadducees claim to be experts in the writing of Moses. So Jesus turns to their area of expertise, to the writings of Moses, verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all to live to him. Now, the fact of life after death is the consistent and clear teaching of Scripture. And in denying the resurrection, these experts in Scripture are denying the truth of Scripture. These experts in the Scriptures do not know the Word of God. 
They do not know it in the sense of understanding it or believing it or submitting to it and living in obedience to it. And here we step into what is a frightening realm. You can be an expert in the Bible without understanding it. You can be an expert in anything without understanding it. I had a big chunk of statistics in my PhD and I have no clue about statistics. Thankfully, the examiners never asked me about them. You can teach the Bible without understanding it. I mean, imagine if somebody taught medicine without understanding medicine. Well, they wouldn't be able to continue in teaching medicine, but when it comes to the church, you can teach the Bible without understanding it. You can know what it says without hearing it. You can know what it says without knowing what it means. And even more shocking, you can know what it says and understand what it says and refuse to believe it and refuse to live by it. Now, these two episodes describe the Jewish religious leaders' refusal to submit to Jesus' authority. It's shocking because of who they are. They are privileged. Jesus is their long-anticipated Messiah. They refuse to submit to his authority. I used to take my glasses off when I was preaching as a matter of habit, but I can't now because I can't read anything when I do. <laughs> okay, put them back on. You see, at the end of the day, their status and their credentials mean nothing. Of course they don't. Now, before we pick up quickly points two and three and then finish, uh, just three observations about the refusal to accept Jesus' authority. Very often, the refusal to accept Jesus' authority is expressed in antagonism towards Jesus or his followers who do accept his authority. Now, we observe that all the time in our culture. Second, refusal to submit to Jesus' authority is evidenced or expressed or is the same as a refusal to submit to Jesus' word. You cannot claim to recognize Jesus' authority and at the same time not recognize his word. His word and his authority are synonymous. The living word and the written word are uh, synonymous. They are one and the same category of authority. It is a blatant contradiction to say, I believe in Jesus, but I do not believe in what he says. It's spin. Submitting to Jesus' authority means submitting to his word. The acid test of someone submitting to Jesus is listening to and obeying his word. If you reject his word, you reject Jesus. And that is sobering, but it is true. And it's quite helpful for us as Christians in the 21st century to have to make decisions of convictions about the Word of God because the culture says no to the Word of God. Do we submit to the Word of God or do we not? Third observation, and uh, you, you know this all too well, 
that there is a fundamental difference between asking questions because you want to know something and thinking up questions with the expressed intention of undermining or discrediting. And uh, little children uh, ask questions just for the pure sake of asking questions. Um, but this is not that. This is, this is hostility. This is undermining or discrediting. One of the most encouraging things about the series of Hope Explored courses that have run over the past few months is that people have come with a, an armload of questions, but every single question they have wanted to know the answer. They wanted to learn. And that reveals a humble heart, a life for God is at work. The kind of questioning these religious leaders engaged in revealed a different kind of heart, a hard heart against uh, Jesus. Point number two, Jesus claims absolute authority. Very quickly, the table's turned. This is verses 41 to 44. Now it's Jesus asking the questions, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And according from Psalm 110, one of the Psalms King David wrote, if the Messiah is to be the son of David in a paternal sense, how can he also be David's Lord? Jesus says, I am. I am a son of David in a paternal sense, and I am his Lord because I am the divine, eternal son of God. Now, whether Jesus meant that as a rhetorical question or not, no answer is given. Luke's point, Jesus is claiming absolute authority. Point number three. Jesus demonstrates his absolute authority in judgment and salvation. You see the logic of where Luke is going and what Jesus has been teaching. Uh, firstly, uh, refusal to submit to Jesus' authority, then his claim of absolute authority, and now his demonstration of authority in judgment and salvation. And in this concluding section, 20:45 through to 21, verse 4, Jesus contrasts the religious leaders with a poor widow. And notice the contrast between the self-importance, the religious show, the sense of entitlement and hypocrisy of the religious leaders with the humility, the devotion, and the sincerity of this woman. Now, don't let the... the, the don't miss the shock of this. Don't fail to feel the shock of this. It's so countercultural. Who submits to Jesus' authority? The religious leaders won't. The poor widow does. Who is judged and who is saved? The religious leaders are judged, verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. The poor widow is the true believer, the true follower who is saved. And there is a bigger theme going on here, and that is God's judgment on Israel on corrupt Judaism. We'll focus on that next week, God willing. Does he mean what he says? Well, we go on into chapter 
21, verse 5 and following, Jesus says this mighty temple that we are standing in will crash to the ground, and it did. But that's next time. For today, I want us to stay with a contrast between those Jesus judges and those he saves. What, what makes the difference? Who we are makes no difference at all. Jesus has absolute authority. To be saved, we must submit to his authority, which means listening to his word. He calls us to repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. It is a narrow door. Narrow because it takes humility to enter in it. To refuse to enter as many do. Means condemnation and everlasting judgment. Now I'm ever more thankful for the clarity of Jesus' teaching. He says hard things. But he never, ever, ever, ever says there is a no man's land to stand on. Let me wrap up with these few applications. We've already had many, but let me just summarize. Number one, beware religious leaders who refuse to submit to Jesus' absolute authority. Jesus' words, verse 46, beware. And I think we need to heed that warning really seriously. Beware religious leaders who refuse to submit to Jesus' absolute authority. I mean, you can hear it in two ways. Someone like me who is a religious leader be very, very, very weary of not submitting to his authority and his word. And to all of us, check out your religious leaders. Check out what they believe and what they teach and hold them accountable to it. Especially in these early decades of the 21st century where the stakes are getting higher and higher. Number uh, two application, and I cannot think of putting this in any different way. This is the tenor, the tone of the text. Are you refusing to submit to Jesus' absolute authority? Now, I'm asking that. I want to just quietly, gently allow God's Word to engage with you if that is where you are. How, how, what, what would be the diagnostic of that is where you are refusing to sit, submit to Jesus' absolute authority because uh, you are antagonistic towards Jesus or his followers. You are antagonistic to people who believe that Jesus' word is authoritative. Or another diagnostic would be that you are simply, you will not submit to his word. Or that you find yourself asking questions, not because you want to know the answer, but because in a Hope Explored course, you want to throw people off finding out the answer. 
that's you, consider carefully whether you really are standing on strong ground. Third application, have you submitted or will you or are you about to submit to Jesus' absolute authority? This passage gives us the opportunity as we come towards the end of Luke to reflect on the model disciples in Luke's gospel. It's really important, especially in our sort of our worlds that we, we, we acknowledge who are the model disciples. Let me just rattle through them and uh, invite you uh, to consider, uh, yes, I do stand in their uh, shoes or not. Uh, Simon, Peter, James, and John, the first disciples who got up and followed him. Levi, the tax collector, an unlikely choice, uh, not a very likable fellow, but uh, he repented of his sins, and he opened up his home to other tax collectors and uh, sinners. A sinful woman in Luke 7, probably a prostitute, who came to Jesus in genuine repentance, or that woman in the crowd who reached out in faith and grasped his clothes. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the model disciples, the ones who behave like Jesus. Or Luke 14, the banquet. Not those who presume on being invited, but the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Strikingly, and I wonder if this is a real acid test, those who are true disciples are those who, when they hear the call of Jesus, come and follow me, get up and follow him. They follow him. The prodigal son who turns away from God and is far away, but in repentance comes back to his father, is welcomed home. I contrast his self-righteous brother who never repents, is estranged from his father and on the outside. One of the most perilous places to be and, and it's no fault of, in a sense, the way uh, sometimes that we live is to be the self-righteous person who never really has done uh, in uh, their eyes and in the eyes of anyone else nearly as much wrong as that other person. But a self-righteous person is a kind of person who will not submit to Jesus' words, who will not realize they need forgiveness, and who asks questions without wanting ever to know uh, the answer. But wonderfully, Jesus takes the self-righteous and persuades them that they need his righteousness. The little children whom Jesus welcomes show us in their absolute dependence and simple trust. What do they show us? That they need another cup of tea and that sugar and honey and milk is not going to sweeten it. The rich ruler is not saved because he will not give up his wealth. The blind beggar who calls out to Jesus is saved and follows Jesus on the way of the cross. And then wonderfully, Luke sticks in Zacchaeus, who is as rich as Croesus, but who repents and gives his life to Jesus. It's not about riches or not having riches. It's about repentance and faith. And then we come to this woman, the poor woman. Every church family, 
and I'm not going to look at anyone in particular, has loads of people who wonderfully fit the category for the last will be first. Humble, humble, godly, saintly people who might not be able to string together an eloquent prayer, but who know and love Jesus because they submit to him and trust him. Let me give you another example of people that are in every church family, people who can string words together wonderfully and who have high-powered and influential jobs, but who have realized that in the spiritual realm, the last will be first and the first will be last, and who have climbed down from the lofty heights that society has placed upon them to a position of humility like that humble, humble woman. And that person sits beside that humble, both humble, side by side, and you never ever sit side by side anywhere other on the earth than a church. That's what the gospel does. Last application uh, will we proclaim Jesus' authority? The reason I stuck that in there is I was at uh, the Edinburgh Theological Seminary closing ceremony <laughs> on Friday night. And they're all getting prizes. And uh, the text that the preacher was preaching on at the end was Acts chapter 4. And I, I was kind of I was watching them all getting prizes, and I was thinking as an old, gnarled minister, do they realize what they're getting into? And it was about uh, Peter and John being arrested for preaching the gospel. And uh, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, as well as his gospel, Luke, quotes uh, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And what's happened by Acts 4 is that it's not just Jesus who is rejected, but the preachers who are rejected. Why, Why is Jesus rejected? Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's not awfully PC. So will we proclaim Jesus' absolute authority? That was the charge to the graduating students in, in ETS. And these wonderful words in Luke, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is the, 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 those who oppose. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And then these beautiful words they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so are we as the Spirit indwells us and as we work through the Gospel of Luke. We have been with Jesus. We are with Jesus. 
We are with Jesus in his word week in, week out. We are with Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we have supernaturally the boldness to proclaim Jesus' absolute authority. For there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Now we're going to sing, um, we're going to sing my top hymn now, not because it's my top hymn. Although, thank you, Scott. It's number one on my very long list of funeral hymns. And off the back of what are strong words from Jesus here, true words, never ever hear Jesus as, as harsh in his conviction. He is a beautiful uh, Savior, and this hymn expresses that uh, beautifully. So let's just be quiet for a moment. I'll lead us in prayers. Our musicians come up, and then we'll sing what could be your funeral hymn as well. It's a great hymn. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you, we honor you, we esteem you, we submit to your authority, we depend upon you, we are ever thankful for the salvation by grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you that matchless grace has made the treasure of your righteousness mine. And Lord, if there are those among us or listening who have not yet yielded and stooped in their hearts to enter through that narrow door, will you enable them to bow down and to come inside to the place of everlasting life and security. What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Help us to sing, Lord, filled with the Spirit, encouraging one another, and then to chat with one another with that same frame of mind. For Jesus' sake. Amen.